Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today longtime friend going all the way back to middle school, high school, like a long, long way long back. Time. Uh, newly minted doctor, Dr. Katie Vol. Katie, how are you? And basically, tell us a little bit about your academic journey and where you are, where you're at today. Yeah, certainly. It's great to be here all the way from many, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I had been, I'm a trained as a child development specialist. That's what my background is. And I've done homeless and mental health work as the child development person in the room for many, many years uh, and have worked for nonprofits, have worked all over the country with different organizations in terms of like trying to build capacity to serve kids and families living in shelters. Through that process, I had many opportunities to do research, but sort of on the edges and wanted to learn more about the research process and what that looked like and just hone my skills in that area. And I also wanted to deepen my expertise. And that's what led me to pursue a, a, my doctorate in early education and care from UMass Boston. Go Beacons. And so I just finished just finished that process back in May and, and I'm transitioning into other new and exciting things. Awesome. Congratulations, first off, on the process, because it is a heck of a process and quite the accomplishment to come out on the other side. We're here today to talk a little bit about a specialty area of yours and uh, one that I'm just now starting to learn about and get dip my toes in a little bit, and that is grant writing. Tell us a little bit about, A, what grant writing is, and B, how you kind of got involved in it. Very simply put, grant writing is asking for money by writing a lot of things. That's the simple way of putting it. I have worked for nonprofits my entire career, so 23 years of working in, in and for and with nonprofits. And so when you're doing that, you've got to sing for your supper, so to speak. I think grant writing sounds intimidating to people, and in some ways it is, but it's also an opportunity to really hone your ideas. Like, what are they asking for? How can I make, like, I have this great idea, but how can I really hone it down? And that, I think, is the is the helpful part of having to jump through all the hoops that grant writers put out there. So I've written, I, th I think at this point, hundreds of grants, small, medium, large. Yeah. That is awesome. Uh, it, it just really. it. So again, I'm, I'm relatively new to academia, right? I've been in there three years now. Never in a million years did I picture myself as somebody who was even going to write a grant. 
I, I also didn't think I'd do a, a terminal degree or a dissertation. So, you know, here we are. Grant writing to me seemed just like something that those like big, smart individuals do that like, you know, a lot of research, a lot of studies, like just those, those super ultra smart people do, right? I will say the one thing that I've found so far is that being an English major to start with mm-hmm. has helped. I will say my writing skills were decent, uh, but it, it seems to me like grant writing is very much a process, right? There's some steps you have to follow to go from beginning, middle, and end. The, the writing part's a whole nother beast we can talk about, but let's just talk about the process. Like, what does it look like in general? I know all grants are somewhat a little bit different based on the foundations or wherever you're writing to, but let's just take a general overview of what a grant writing process looks like. Yeah. So it can start in a few ways. One is that you have an idea that you want to go out and get money for. Uh, The other is that you have a budget that you need to fund and you're looking for different ways to fund that program. So for many years, I worked at an organization called the National Center on Family Homelessness, and we had tons of good ideas. And sometimes we were matching those good ideas to the funders. Sometimes we were looking at funders who we knew would support the kind of work that we were doing and tailoring things to what their priorities were and, and vice versa. It could start in either place. Once you've identified the source of the money, the source of the money that you'd like to get, I think the next step is to figure out who's your team because you should not write grants alone. Even if it's a small grant that you're writing for your own personal research, you should always have a backup or a sounding board or an editor or someone or a mentor. Uh, And then if you're writing a big federal grant, you're going to have a a bigger team, of course. Uh, And then the next piece, I think, is really to identify who your partners are in the work. So you've got your team that's writing, but then once you, if this money were to come in tomorrow, who are you going to partner with to get the work done? And that could be a statistician if you don't have statistical skills, or it could be a community partner so you can collect the data or whoever, who's your team. And then the next piece of it is to, you know, good project management, make yourself a work plan, get those deadlines, figure out what forms you've got to do, sit down and actually do the writing. And what I generally recommend and how I was taught to write grants is that before you start to do the writing and you're brainstorming with your team and you're all pepped up about your idea, Go to the academic literature and see what the research says and look and make sure that you're not reinventing the wheel, that you're rooted in what is what the evidence says is useful so you can really make your case. And so the first thing I do when I start writing a grant, in addition to all those steps, is do a lot of reading, actually, a lot of reading and a lot of taking notes and like thinking. In my limited experience, the thing that kind of scares me the most is that that research part that that find it, you know, find what's out there. But really, if you if you look at it nowadays, right, everything we're doing and teaching is trying to be evidence based practice, right, and evidence based learning. Yep. So it makes sense to go out and find there. And we're already kind of reading research out there anyway, or at least I am. Like uh, I try, right. We definitely want our students to be reading research. So I think realistically, you know, it's one of those things where. I think it's it's seems more intimidating than it really is. It seems like just supporting your ideas and your argument with the research that's out there is a logical next step for any project that you're doing research-wise. Like you have to do that anyway, right? You're having to write a literature review to support your research argument. The argument should be filling a void or a gap in the knowledge, right? So now we're just saying, hey, we have this idea or this project that we think can help people do you know whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. Here's the research that shows and supports it. 
now what? We've collected all this stuff and, and you know, we've got to write some sort of pitch or proposal, so to speak. How, wh- how do we do that? What do we do in, in terms of that? And remember that whoever's reviewing the grant, so you are an expert at this, whoever, whatever you're writing about, whoever is reading the grant may not have any expertise at all in what they're reviewing. And so you really need to like lead them through that. And when I say go to the literature and look at what the research says, it doesn't need to be an exhaustive lit review that you write up like you do for a dissertation, unless you're applying for very, very competitive NIH grants that are a much more extensive application. And even then, it doesn't need to be a comprehensive literature review like you would write up for a book proposal or something like that. But you do need to know what you're talking about. Say, you know, evidence-based practice in the PT field says that X, Y, and Z. Put some citations. Based on this, our idea is to blah, 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 blah. So you're you're building up that. You're showing that you have credibility in your field and that you know what you're talking about and in a logical way that that the reviewers can follow. And I will say, as a fellow English major uh, and lover of writing, I love to write. I'm one of the few people usually on teams that are like, oh, yeah, we get to write something. And it really does help. Those writing skills really yeah. come in handy to like hone your argument, be concise, figure out what the logic is from one paragraph to the next. You, it really does help. Yeah, it's so interesting because I thought because I was an English major, I could just write very well. You know, I just, oh, I'll be fine. I can write. Uh, then I got into the dissertation and the scientific writing and academic writing is very different. It's very much a different language and a different beast. So I almost had to relearn how to write. Yeah. But now that I kind of know both sides of the coin, I feel like that's that's been helpful for me. I've been asked to edit on a couple of papers, and I'm more than happy to do that. And I think the English background really helps with that. Um, I've also started my own manuscripts and my own journals and, and, and submissions that I'm working on. So I've had to kind of do my own learning of how the writing process goes for those. So I think stacking those skill sets has definitely helped. But again, like not knowing what I don't know, I've had to learn this this process of how to write a grant, right? And so what would you recommend for like somebody who is like going out and seeking a place to to submit to or to give money, you know, like what, how do you find people and, and places and foundations and things that have money towards your projects? This is probably depends on your field a little bit, but I'll give you some broad ideas. So And there are databases out there that organizations subscribe to that you can look at. But a lot of communities have community foundations that will support local, good local work, health insurance companies and things like that. They'll have a community fund where it may not be huge money, but it might be just enough to get you started on a community project. Uh, And I certainly have had programs like that that have been funded where it's like a little bit of money from here, a little bit of money from there, a little bit of money from there. But all those little bits add up to something that you can do for a reasonable amount of money. Then there are the national found, you know, more national or regional foundations or more focused ones. These are the ones you hear, at least up here in the Boston area, we hear them advertised on NPR. And then there's the federal, the federal grants. If you're not on grants.gov, I advise people to do that, especially in academia, because that's where you're going to get your big research grants. Uh, You're going to get the announcements. You're going to see what those, their priorities are. Um, It's grants.gov. You can put in your search terms and set alerts and things like that, figure out which federal agencies are funding the kind of work that you do. So for me, there's a child development branch of NIH and there's the Administration for Children and Families and some mental health subcategories that I make sure that I follow. Um, I'm not sure what it would be in the PT world, but that's a good starting spot. 
The other piece is that I have found that professional associations are pretty good, at least in my field of advertising when grants come about. So like there's an infant uh, mental health, which is one of my areas of expertise and practice. There's an infant mental health association and they'll put grant announcements in there from founder funders that they hear about. And that's another. So I do read those email newsletters and hear about things through that as well. Very cool. So we've got our idea. We've got our foundation or our source of where we're going to uh, kind of submit to. Uh, we've written up our, our proposal, our grant, and we've, we've kind of brought that together with our team. Let's just say this grant gets accepted, right? They're like, yeah, we're, we're all on board with this. Let's do it. Here's the money. Let's, let's start. Away we go. What happens next? That's the fun part. First, you do a little dance and celebrate that you got money because it's hard to get a grant, right? I, you write and write and write and pour your heart and soul into it. Six months go by and one out of 10 times you're going to get funded, right? It's a 10% success rate is considered a good success rate. So just hmm. to keep in mind. So first thing you do is celebrate. All right. After you do that, what I tell people is take your grant proposal and actually start breaking it down to like, oh, here's what we said we would do. Here's most grants will require you to put in some kind of small timeline of like what you expect to do in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. Start breaking that down into steps. Figure out what your staffing plan looks like. I've written so many grants where by the time we hear back, staff have moved on or they're fully booked or, you know, life happens. And so it's like, oh, shoot, we need a project coordinator or we need, you know, yes. this person to do field outreach. Figure out who your team really is going to be yeah. make a detailed budget with your budget person and maybe you're the budget person but make a detailed budget so that you follow that and once you've done all the that good project management stuff the other piece is most grants all grants have a project officer which is the person at the funding level who is responsible for making sure that you use the money wisely and help you navigate the process start building a relationship with that person from day one. Get to know them, set up calls, involve them, ask them how they want to be involved with you. Some are more hands-off, some want to be much more hands-on, uh, and that will serve you well, especially when you run into snags in the project, which you will, right? Nothing, nothing ever goes from A to B smoothly, right? There'll be bumps along the way. And later on, if you want to reapply for funding or you're looking for to further the research after that, you'll already have that relationship with that person and that can that can help in the long run. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you gotta talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. All right. So we've done all that. We've gotten our, our project off the ground. It's run for say a year or two, whatever. And, and the end is coming to this project. 
at that point, either maybe we, you know, look to expand it and, and continue it on. And maybe we ask for more money to do that again, or maybe the project ends and that's it. And we did what it was supposed to do. What does that now look like? Are we having to publish stuff? Are we having to work some sort of deal where we continue on and we ask for money again to support? Like, how, to, how does it work after we've done what we've said and now what? Yeah, so... I like to think about, and this is a hard learned lesson over many years of doing this, I like to think about how you're building capacity in the community or in your field from day one. So from the time you get that grant, think about, all right, two years from now, three years from now, six months from when the grant ends, what capacity are we going to have created in the world? Because that's why we're doing this, right? Not just because it's a fun thing to do. We're doing this to make the world a better place uh, and to help people, presumably. Uh, and so what capacity are we leaving on the ground? And so to think about that, and I think about that in a few ways. One is to think about academically, like what are the publications that I'm contributing to the field? What have I learned? What am I leaving uh, in the academic databases for someone else to pick up someday and then continue to carry on? And then what is it we've created and how can that be like sometimes it's a model program or an approach or an intervention? How can that be? Further, it is an inter intervention that we can publish out of and create a manual and put it online or teach other educators or use with students or, in my case, disseminate to community organizations that they can use it. Uh, what is what is that going to look like? And I, I think that's an important part to actually build into all grants because otherwise you do all this work and it's great for a few years and then now what? Yeah, and I think that's one of my my biggest worries or concerns is that I get this thing up and running and then it's how do you sustain it, right? Because I don't want it to just die. If it's a great program and I know it will be, then I want it to continue on yeah. even if I'm, you know, gone and, and off doing whatever, you know, like something else. So like, I think that's a, an interesting thing to think about when you're doing these things is sustainability, you know, like how are you going to, what, what's, what's the bottom line? What's it going to take to continue this on? So presenting at conferences is really helpful to, I have found when I have gone and to professional conferences, especially the national ones, and you start talking about like, we did this really interesting project and here's what we found and here's how it worked. And then you're having conversations with people who have not only chosen to attend that conference, but chosen to attend your session. And then you can have conversations and that's it. I've seen a lot of good work spread that way because then they take it back to their communities and continue the conversation that way and build capacity that way. Very cool. Yeah, I wouldn't even have thought of that. Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about like, if somebody is just getting started, it's, you know, they're very new or green in the uh, grant writing process, myself included. What are some tips or tricks or pointers that you've learned over the years that help, can help somebody that's just getting started and figuring this out and navigating the waters of new to grant writing? Yes, um, I definitely have advice here. One is read through the priorities of the foundation and of that particular funding source. So sometimes foundations or government agencies will have broad priorities. You want to get to know those. And for the particular grant, there'll be very specific things that they're looking for. Read those, absorb them into your skin, make them your own. Because what's going to happen is, and we've done this, we dream up these big, wonderful, fantastic ideas. But if they don't match the priorities or what the, the foundation is looking to fund, it doesn't matter right? How good your idea is. They have their things that they funded, their board has approved it, they're ready to go. So what you need to do is make a case that your priorities and their priorities overlap and make sense. And that is one thing that is hard to do when you're writing. The other piece is to make sure you follow their directions exactly. 
you know, these reviewers are reading piles and piles of these grants all the time. Make it easy for them. So if they say all grants have to have these three objectives, you want to write objective number one, write what it is, and then write how your project answers that objective. Objective number two, and then write how. So it's very, very clear when they read it through. I do think if you can build in time in the grant writing process, which is hard to do, we all have lots of things and lots of priorities in our lives and competing demands. But if you can set aside a little bit of time to have someone else read your grant before you submit it who has done this before. And that's how I've learned. I've been partnered with very senior, successful grant writers for my whole career. And so that's how I've learned. I write something. I think it's great. They take it and say, no, it's not great for these 12 reasons. And there's red ink all over the place. And then the next time I do it, there's a little less red ink. And then the next time a little less, right? Because I've learned how to how to do this over the course of the process. Have somebody read through it and make sure it makes sense to them. Awesome. Yeah, I'm uh, slightly less anxious than I was before talking with you now. I think, uh, you know, I've got some good tips and pointers and tricks and ideas of what it should look like and how I can navigate this. I am cautiously optimistic, I will say. I think uh, I'm, I'm excited, but at the same time, you know, Looking forward to a lot of red ink to start, so to speak. Yeah, just hopefully getting better at it and better at it and better at it. I don't know that it's uh, an all day, every day kind of thing for me. But at the same time, let's start with one, right? Let's get one approved and then move on from there and build off of that little by little. So, well, Katie, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this and share your expertise and knowledge on all things grant related. Um, we have one question that we we do ask all of our guests uh, at the end here, and that's if you could change one aspect of higher education, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Oh, so many things to think about when I think about that question. I think particularly in the communities where I work and in the field where I'm working, which is most of the academic teaching that I'm doing is in the child development and early education space, the pay scales are very low for those professions. And college is very expensive. And yet we know that you need good people in the early education workforce to care for and educate young children and implement the best practices that we're writing these grants to, to get. Uh, and so if I could change one thing, it would be to somehow level out that those inequities. I don't think there's any good you know, magic wand I can wave to make that happen. But the cost, it's so expensive. I watch my students working multiple jobs to be able to do that. And they love working with children and they are interested in developmental psychology and they're asking really good questions. And yet I worry about how much they're having to take on at so young an age in order to be able to get there. And will that be, will they be able to, to sustain themselves in that field? You can't raise a family in the Boston area or anywhere in the country on those kind of, those kind of wages with massive student debt. And so those those are the things that I would like to see change in, in our field. Yeah. So uh, the number one most given answer is uh, the cost. Uh, yeah. So you are right in line with that. <laughs> uh, ironically enough, uh, very much a similar situation in the, the doctor physical therapy world. Uh, debt to income ratio is bad and getting worse. Mm -hmm. Reimbursement rates for physical therapy is dropping year over year. So we're getting paid less and less for what we do and our cost of education is going up and up. So it's not a great situation either, you know, in, in our world. And it's not just PT, it's, it's healthcare in general as well. We, we definitely need to figure out ways to navigate those, those issues for sure. And luckily, uh, I work with some pretty brilliant people that are working on that and pushing the needle on financial Same. literacy and 
ways to start your own business and get out there and do the right things, uh, you know, to help make what we're worth, right? To to get paid our value. And interestingly enough, in the world of physical therapy, pediatrics is one of the lower paid groups as well. A lot of Medicaid, a lot of, um, you know, federal funded type insurance programs and things like that. So, uh, you know, it makes sense. But at the same time, it's like, well, this is an important population too that we're working with. So like, you know, we really shouldn't be paying out at a lesser rate because of, you know, necessarily the reimbursement stuff. So it does become, uh, you know, an, an issue of like the haves and the have nots, right? Those who can afford to pay for it, pay for it. Those who can't suffer. And that's not, you know, that's not really in line with the equity that we're looking for uh, these days. So that's uh, exactly it. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that answer. And like I said, it's uh, it's obviously a, a crisis. It's a, it's a nationwide crisis. And we have some of the greatest schools in the nation. People come from all over the world to learn here and train here. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, we got, we also have to figure out ways to, to get paid what we're worth and, and to make that education worth it. So I think it's about leveraging our skill sets to get to that point. I agree. I agree. And I also think one of the things that I hear from you when I see your posts and in conversation is that I love to mentor students. I love to, I love it. It's what keeps me in the higher education field. They ask good questions. They're curious. They're seeing the concepts we're talking about in class and they're seeing it when they go into their classrooms and when they're working with kids. And that, that to me is something to nurture, not to, not to extinguish. Yeah. And yeah, I love that stuff. I would do it all day, every day if I could. Right. But at the same time, we've got to figure out a way to, to make it worth both for both parties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and at least I think the good news that's coming out of a lot of this stuff is that we're at least making our students more aware and they're they're becoming more well educated on the crises and, and, yes. and the things that are they're gonna face moving forward because it's way different from when I first came out to when the kids are graduating now. I mean, social media wasn't even a thing, right? Like we didn't we we, <laughs> we had dark email, <laughs> yeah, right? Like dinosaurs roaming around, but at least we had email, right? Like, all right, that's a start. Now they've got social media and there's so much more opportunity out there with the internet and with social media to really make a name for yourself and do some really great things out there. The opportunity is plentiful. We just need to make them aware of it and then show them some of the, you know, expertise and authority that we've learned over the years to help them nurture it and really grow into something that makes them happy and and proud and that they can live off and support their family on. You know, we shouldn't have to struggle, you know, just because we chose to go to a a school that is going to help us with some skill set that's going to help the population. You know, it's sure. we're going to run out of doctors and nurses and lawyers and, and dentists and, you know, licensed professionals if it's if it's getting too expensive. You know, nobody's going to be here to take care of anybody anymore. Well, awesome. Thank you again so much for your time and for coming on. Where can people reach out to you if they have follow up questions or just want to see what you're up to these days? Yeah, sure. So LinkedIn is a great place to find me. Uh, my name is Katie Volk can see it down there at the bottom of your screen. That's how I show up on LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a website that's about to come out. It's called yellowtulipconsulting.com. Uh, and so you can reach out to me there as well. Awesome. We'll drop those links in the show notes so everybody can find you very easily. Katie, thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure catching back up with you. Likewise. Thanks, Scott. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. 
We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.